Chapter 4 Truth is much too complicated to allow for anything but approximations. John von Neumann Jim Simons was miserable. He hadn't abandoned a flourishing academic career to deal with sudden losses and grumpy investors. Simons had to find a different method to speculate on financial markets. Lenny Baum's approach, reliant on intellect and instinct, just didn't seem to work. It also left Simons deeply unsettled. If you make money, you feel like a genius, he told a friend. If you lose, you're a dope. Simons called Charlie Freifeld, the investor who had made him a millionaire speculating on sugar contracts, to share his frustrations. It's just too hard to do it this way, Simon said, sounding exasperated. I have to do it mathematically. Simons wondered if the technology was yet available to trade using mathematical models and preset algorithms, to avoid the emotional ups and downs that come with betting on markets with only intelligence and intuition. Simon still had James Axe working for him, a mathematician who seemed perfectly suited to build a pioneering computer trading system. Simon's resolved to back Axe with ample support and resources, hoping something special would emerge. For a while, it seemed an investing revolution was at hand. No one understood why James Axe was always so angry. There was the time he drove his foot through a department wall, the fistfight he started with a fellow mathematician, and the invective he regularly directed at colleagues. Axe squabbled about credit due, seethed if someone let him down, and shouted if he didn't get his way. The rage didn't make much sense. Axe was an acclaimed mathematician with chiseled good looks and a biting sense of humor. He enjoyed professional success and acclaim from his peers. Yet most days, Axe was a disagreement away from a frightening eruption of peak and dudgeon. His gifts emerged at a young age. Born in the Bronx, Axe attended Stuyvesant High School in Lower Manhattan, New York City's most prestigious public school. Later, he graduated with high honors from the Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn, a school claiming notable contributions to the development of microwave physics, radar, and the U.S. space program. Axe concealed deep suffering that wasn't immediately apparent amid his academic achievement. When he was seven, his father had abandoned the family, leaving the boy disconsolate. Growing up, Axe battled constant stomach pain and fatigue. It took doctors until his late teens to deliver a diagnosis of Crohn's disease, prompting a series of treatments that helped ameliorate his condition. In 1961, Axe earned a PhD in mathematics from the University of California, Berkeley, where he became friends with Simons, a fellow graduate student. Axe was the first to greet Simons and his wife in the hospital after Barbara gave birth to their first child. As a mathematics professor at Cornell University, Axe helped develop a branch of pure mathematics called number theory. In the process, he forged a close bond with a senior, tenured academic named Simon Koshin, a mathematical logician. Together, the professors tried to prove a famous 50-year-old conjecture made by the famed Austrian mathematician Emil Artin, meeting immediate and enduring frustration. To blow off steam, Axe and Koshin initiated a weekly poker game with colleagues and others in the Ithaca, New York area. What started as friendly get-togethers, with winning pots that rarely topped $15, grew in intensity until the men fought over stakes reaching hundreds of dollars. Axe was a decent poker player, 
but he couldn't find a way to beat Koshin. Growing more infuriated with each loss, Axe became convinced Koshin was gaining a crucial advantage by reading his facial expressions. Axe had to hide his tell. One summer evening, as the poker players sat down to play in a brutal heat wave, Axe showed up wearing a heavy woolen ski mask to conceal his face. Sweating profusely, and barely able to see through the mask's narrow openings, Axe somehow lost to Koshin again. Axe stalked away from the game, fuming, never to uncover Koshin's secret. It wasn't his face, Koshin says. Jim tended to straighten up in his chair when he had a good hand. Axe spent the 1970s searching for new rivals and ways to best them. In addition to poker, he took up golf and bowling, while emerging as one of the nation's top backgammon players. Jim was a restless man with a restless mind, Koshin says. Axe focused the bulk of his energies on math, a world that is more competitive than most realize. Mathematicians usually enter the field out of a love for numbers, structures, or models, but the real thrill often comes from being the first to make a discovery or advance. Andrew Wiles, the Princeton mathematician famous for proving the Fermat conjecture, describes mathematics as a journey through a dark, unexplored mansion, with months or even years spent stumbling around. Along the way, pressures emerge. Math is considered a young person's game. Those who don't accomplish something of significance in their 20s or early 30s can see their chances slip away. Even as Axe made progress in his career, anxieties and irritations built. One day, after complaining bitterly to Koshin that his office was too close to the department's bathroom and that sounds from inside were interfering with his concentration, Axe drove a boot through the wall between his office and the bathroom, leaving a gaping hole. He had successfully proved how flimsy the wall was, but Axe could now hear each toilet flush even more clearly than before. To tweak Axe, the professors preserved the opening, further riling him. As Koshin got to know Axe and became aware of the pain of his early years, Koshin adopted a more generous attitude toward his colleague. Axe's fury stemmed from deep insecurities, Koshin argued to others, not outright cruelty, and his unhappiness often dissipated quickly. Koshin and Axe became close friends, as did their wives. Eventually, the mathematicians introduced an elegant solution to their long-running mathematical challenge, an advance that became known as the Axe-Koshin theorem. In some ways, their approach was more startling than their accomplishment. Until then, no one had used the techniques of mathematical logic to solve problems in number theory. The methods we used were from left field, Koshin says. In 1967, the theorem, described in three innovative papers, won Koshin and Axe the Frank Nelson Cole Prize in number theory, among the top honors in the field, and an award given out just once every five years. Axe received a fair amount of acclaim, and the university promoted him to full professor in 1969. At 29, Axe was the youngest ever to hold that title at Cornell. That was the year Axe received a call from Simons inviting him to join Stony Brook's growing mathematics department. Axe was born and raised in New York City, but he was drawn to the calm of the ocean, perhaps the result of the early upheaval in his life. At the same time, his wife, Barbara, had grown weary of Ithaca's brutal winters. After Axe left for Stony Brook, Cornell threatened to register a protest with Governor Rockefeller 
if Simons raided any more of the university's faculty members, a sign of the dismay the Ivy League school felt about losing its celebrated mathematician. Soon after arriving at Stony Brook, Axe told a colleague that mathematicians do their best work by the age of 30, a possible indication he was feeling pressure to top his early success. Colleagues sensed that Axe was disappointed that his work with Koshin hadn't resulted in sufficient adulation. Axe's publication rate dwindled, and he threw himself into poker, chess, and even fishing, searching for distractions from mathematics. Battling clear signs of depression, Axe engaged in frequent arguments with his wife, Barbara. Like others in the department, Axe had wed at a young age, before the decades period of sexual liberation and experimentation had begun. As Axe let his hair grow and began favoring tight-fitting jeans, rumors emerged of his infidelities. Others with two young children might have worked on their marriage for the sake of the kids, but fatherhood didn't come easily to Axe. I like kids, he said, with a lingering Bronx accent. Once they learn algebra. After Axe's divorce turned bitter and he lost custody of his sons, Kevin and Brian, he had little to do with the boys. Axe seemed in a perpetual dark mood. At department meetings, he interrupted colleagues so frequently that Leonard Charlap began carrying a bell so he could ring it each time Axe cut someone off. What the hell are you doing? Axe screamed one day. When Charlap explained the bell's purpose, Axe stormed out, leaving his co-workers in laughter. Another time, Axe got into a fistfight with an associate professor, forcing colleagues to pull him off the younger colleague. Axe's incessant needling had convinced the younger professor that Axe would block his promotion, sparking tension. I could have been killed, the younger professor screamed at Axe. Despite the interpersonal drama, Axe's reputation in the field remained such that Michael Freed, a young professor, turned down a tenured position at the University of Chicago to join Axe at Stony Brook. Axe respected Freed's abilities and seemed taken with the mathematician's natural magnetism. Freed was a muscular, six-foot athlete with wavy auburn hair and a thin mustache, the closest the math world could expect to come to the macho man look sweeping the country in the early 1970s. At department parties, women swooned. Axe, newly divorced, seemed to take note, Freed recalls. It was almost as if Axe invited me there to attract women, he says. Their relationship frayed, however, as Freed suspected Axe was appropriating his work without sharing proper credit. For his part, Axe believed Freed wasn't showing him the appropriate amount of respect around other academics. At a grievance airing meeting with Freed, Simons, and a Stony Brook administrator, Axe got in Freed's face to deliver an ominous vow. I'm going to do everything I can to ruin your career, fair or foul, Axe foamed. Stunned, Freed couldn't muster much of a comeback. Forget it, Freed responded. He walked out, never to speak to Axe again. When Simons first talked to Axe about joining his trading venture in 1978, Axe viewed financial markets as a bit boring. He changed his mind after visiting Simons' office and getting a look at Baum's early trading models. Simons portrayed investing as the ultimate puzzle, promising to back Axe with his own account if he left academia to focus on trading. Eager for fresh competition and in need of a break from academia, Axe wondered if he could beat the market. In 1979, 
Axe joined Simons at his strip mall office near the pizza parlor and the women's clothing store. At first, Axe focused on the market's fundamentals, such as whether demand for soybeans would grow or a severe weather pattern would affect the supply of wheat. Axe's returns weren't remarkable, so he began developing a trading system to take advantage of his math background. Axe mined the assorted data Simons and his team had collected, crafting algorithms to predict where various currencies and commodities were headed. His early research wasn't especially original. Axe identified slight upward trends in a number of investments and tested if their average price over the previous 10, 15, 20, or 50 days was predictive of future moves. It was similar to the work of other traders, often called trenders, who examine moving averages and jump on market trends, riding them until they peter out. Axe's predictive models had potential, but they were quite crude. The trove of data Simons and others had collected proved of little use, mostly because it was riddled with errors and faulty prices. Also, Axe's trading system wasn't in any way automated. His trades were made by phone twice a day, in the morning and at the end of the trading day. To gain an edge on his rivals, Axe began relying on a former professor with hidden talents soon to be revealed. A native of Philadelphia, Sandor Strauss earned a Ph.D. in mathematics from Berkeley in 1972 and moved to Long Island for a teaching job in Stony Brook's math department. Outgoing and gregarious, Strauss received strong reviews for his teaching and thrived among colleagues who shared his passion for mathematics and computers. Strauss even looked the part of a successful academic of the era, an unabashed liberal who had met his wife, Faye, at an anti-war rally during Eugene McCarthy's presidential campaign in 1968, Strauss, like many other men on campus, wore round, John Lennon-style glasses and combed his long brown hair back in a ponytail. Over time, however, Strauss began worrying about his future. He sensed he was a subpar mathematician and knew he was inept at department politics. Ill-equipped to jostle with fellow mathematicians for funding for projects of interest, Strauss understood he had little chance of obtaining tenure at Stony Brook or another school with a respected math department. In 1976, Strauss joined Stony Brook's Computer Center, where he helped Axe and other faculty members develop computer simulations. Strauss was making an annual salary of less than $20,000, had little opportunity for advancement, and was unsure about his future. I wasn't super happy, he says. In the spring of 1980, as Hollander prepared to leave Monometrics, Axe recommended the firm hire Strauss as its new computer specialist. Impressed with Strauss's credentials and a bit desperate to fill the hole Hollander was leaving, Simons offered to double Strauss's salary. Strauss was torn. He was 35 years old, and the computer center's salary made it difficult to support his wife and one-year-old baby. But he thought if he hung on for another couple of years, he might receive the equivalent of tenure at the university. Strauss's father and friends gave the same advice. Don't even consider giving up a steady job to join a no-name trading firm that might fold. Strauss ignored the advice and accepted Simons's offer, but he hedged his bet, requesting a one-year leave of absence from Stony Brook rather than resigning outright. Greeting the new hire, Axe asked for help building his computer models. Axe said he wanted to invest in commodity, currency, and bond futures 
based on technical analysis, an age-old craft that aims to make forecasts based on patterns in past market data. Axe directed Strauss to dig up all the historic information he could to improve his predictive models. As Strauss searched for pricing data, he ran into problems. At the time, the Tellerate machines dominating trading floors didn't have an interface enabling investors to collect and analyze the information. A few years later, a laid-off businessman named Michael Bloomberg would introduce a competing machine with those capabilities and much more. Piecing together a custom-built database, Strauss purchased historic commodity price data on magnetic tape from an Indiana-based firm called Dunn & Hargett, then merged it with the historic information others in the firm already had amassed. For more recent figures, Strauss got his hands on opening and closing prices for each day's session, along with high and low figures. Eventually, Strauss discovered a data feed that had tick data, the intraday fluctuations of various commodities and other futures trades. Using an Apple II computer, Strauss and others wrote a program to collect and store their growing data trove. No one had asked Strauss to track down so much information. Opening and closing prices seemed sufficient to Simons and Axe. They didn't even have a way to use all the data Strauss was gathering, and with computer processing power still limited, that didn't seem likely to change. But Strauss figured he'd continue collecting the information in case it came in handy down the road. Strauss became somewhat obsessive in his quest to locate pricing data before others realized its potential value. Strauss even collected information on stock trades, just in case Simons' team wanted it at some point in the future. For Strauss, gathering data became a matter of personal pride. Looking over his mounds of data, though, Strauss became concerned. Over long stretches of time, some commodity prices didn't seem to move. That didn't seem to make sense. 20 minutes and not a single trade? There was even an odd gap, years earlier, when there was no futures trading in Chicago over a period of a couple of days, even though there was activity in other markets during that time. It turned out a major flood had suspended Chicago trading. The inconsistencies bothered Strauss. He hired a student to write computer programs to detect unusual spikes, dips, or gaps in their collection of prices. Working in a small, windowless office next to Axe and down a spiral staircase from Simon's, Strauss began the painstaking work of checking his prices against yearbooks produced by commodity exchanges, futures tables, and archives of the Wall Street Journal and other newspapers, as well as other sources. No one had told Strauss to worry so much about the prices, but he had transformed into a data purist, foraging and cleaning data the rest of the world cared little about. Some people take years to identify a profession for which they are naturally suited. Others never make the discovery. Strauss had certain gifts that were only now being revealed. In almost any other trading firm or previous era, his fixation on accurate pricing information would have seemed out of place, maybe even a bit kooky. But Strauss saw himself as an explorer on the trail of untold riches with almost no one in pursuit. Some other traders were gathering and cleaning data, but no one collected as much as Strauss, who was becoming something of a data guru. Energized by the challenge and opportunity, he came to an obvious career decision. I'm not going back to that computer center.
Strauss's data helped Axe improve his trading results, putting him in rare spirits as he became increasingly optimistic about their methods. Axe still gambled, played in a racquetball league, and bowled, mind you. He also traveled to Las Vegas, where he captured third place in Backgammon's World Amateur Championship, earning a mention in the New York Times along the way. He had to have competition and he had to win, says Reggie Dugard, another programmer. But Axe had discovered trading to be as absorbing and stimulating as any challenge he had encountered. He and Strauss programmed past price moves into their trading model, hoping to predict the future. There's something here, Simons told Axe, encouraging their new approach. Searching for additional help, Simons asked Henry Laufer, a well-regarded Stony Brook mathematician, to spend one day a week helping out. Laufer and Axe had complementary mathematical skills. Axe was a number theorist, while Laufer explored functions of complex numbers, suggesting a partnership might work. They had distinct personalities, though. Taking over Lenny Baum's old office, Laufer sometimes brought his infant into the office in a car seat, as Axe looked on askance. Laufer created computer simulations to test whether certain strategies should be added to their trading model. The strategies were often based on the idea that prices tend to revert after an initial move higher or lower. Laufer would buy futures contracts if they opened at unusually low prices compared with their previous closing price, and sell if prices began the day much higher than their previous close. Simons made his own improvements to the evolving system, while insisting that the team work together and share credit. Axe sometimes had difficulty with the request, stressing out over recognition and compensation. Henry is overstating his role, Axe complained to Simons one day. Don't worry about it, I'll treat you both equally. Simons' response did little to appease Axe. For the next six months, he refused to speak to Laufer, though Laufer was so caught up in his work he barely noticed. Around the office, Axe pushed conspiracy theories, especially those involving the Kennedy assassination. He also demanded that staffers refer to him as Dr. Axe, out of respect for his PhD. They refused. Once, Axe asked Penny Albergine to tell a driver in an adjoining parking lot to move his car because the sun glare was bothering him. Albergine pretended she couldn't find the car's owner. He had no personal self-confidence and always took things the wrong way, Albergine says. I would pray that I wouldn't upset him or aggravate him. Axe and his team were making money, but there were few hints their efforts would lead to anything special. It wasn't even clear Simons would keep the trading effort going. When one employee received a job offer from Grumman, Strauss supported his decision to leave. The defense contractor was a stable company. It even offered a signing bonus of a free turkey. Leaving seemed like a no-brainer. In 1985, Axe surprised Simons with the news that he was moving. Axe wanted to be in a warmer climate so he could sail, surf, and play racquetball year-round. Strauss also wanted to flee the cold of the Northeast. Given little choice, Simons agreed to let them move the trading business to the West Coast. Settling in Huntington Beach, California, 37 miles from Los Angeles, Axe and Strauss established a new company called Axcom Limited. Simons received 25% of the new entity's profits while agreeing to provide trading help and communicate with the new firm's clients. Axe and Strauss would manage the investments 
and split the remaining 75% ownership. Laufer, who had no desire to move west, returned to teach at Stony Brook, though he continued to trade with Simons in his spare time. Axe had another impetus for his move that he didn't share with Simons. He was dealing with enduring sadness from his divorce, which he continued to blame on his ex-wife. Once he left New York, Axe abandoned his children, much as his own father had vanished from his life years earlier. Axe wouldn't speak to his boys again for more than 15 years. The Huntington Beach office, located on the top floor of a two-story office park owned by a subsidiary of oil giant Chevron, was about the last place one would expect to find a cutting-edge trading firm. Oil wells pumped away in the parking lot, and the smell of crude oil permeated the entire neighborhood. The building didn't have an elevator, so Strauss and a crew of workers used a stair crawler to get a hulking VAX 11750 with 300 megabytes of disk storage into the office. An immense Gould Super Mini computer, which had 900 megabytes of storage and was the size of a large refrigerator, had to be moved off a truck onto a forklift, which deposited it into the office via a second-floor balcony. By 1986, Axcom was trading 21 different futures contracts, including the British pound, Swiss franc, Deutschmark, euro dollars, and commodities including wheat, corn, and sugar. Mathematical formulas developed by Axe and Strauss generated most of the firm's moves, though a few decisions were based on Axe's judgment calls. Before the beginning of trading each day, and just before the end of trading in the late afternoon, a computer program would send an electronic message to Greg Olson, their broker at an outside firm, with an order and some simple conditions. One example, if wheat opens above $4.25, sell 36 contracts. Olson would buy and sell futures contracts the old-fashioned way, calling floor brokers at various commodity and bond exchanges. Sometimes the results of this partially automated system were impressive. Often, they left the team frustrated. One big problem? Neither Simons nor the team in the Huntington Beach office were unearthing new ways to make money or improve their existing strategies, some of which their rivals had caught on to. Simons considered the possible influence of sunspots and lunar phases on trading, but few reliable patterns resulted. Strauss had a cousin who worked at AccuWeather, the weather forecasting company, so he made a deal to review Brazilian weather history to see if it could predict coffee prices, another effort that proved a waste of time. Data on public sentiment and the holdings of fellow futures traders also yielded few dependable sequences. Axe spent time searching for fresh algorithms, but he was also playing a lot of racquetball, learning how to windsurf, and generally attending to an emerging midlife crisis. With his broad shoulders, muscular build, and wavy brown hair, Axe had the look of a chilled-out surfer, but he was anything but relaxed, even in California. Axe began staging intense weight loss competitions and became determined to trounce his office mates. Once, just before the initial weigh-in, Axe packed on several pounds gorging on melon, calculating that he'd quickly shed the new weight, since melon is laden with water. Another time, Axe furiously biked to work in the sun, hoping to lose weight, arriving so drenched in perspiration that he'd placed his underwear in an office microwave to dry. Minutes later, the microwave burst into flames as a staffer ran for a fire extinguisher. 
Several times a year, Simons flew to California to discuss potential trading approaches, but his visits produced more misery than breakthroughs. Now that they lived in California, some of the staff embraced health-conscious lifestyles. Simons was still chain-smoking three packs of merits a day. No one wanted to be with him as he smoked in the office, says an employee at the time. So we'd go out for lunch and try to get him to work outside as long as we could. When lunch was over, Simons would suggest they return to the office, but the team so dreaded being cooped up with his smoke that they'd manufacture excuses to stay away. You know what, Jim? It's nice out here, a colleague told Simons after one of their lunches. Yeah, let's just stay and work outside, another AXCOM member chimed in. Simons agreed, oblivious to the true reason the staffers were dragging their feet about heading back inside. Eventually, Axe decided they needed to trade in a more sophisticated way. They hadn't tried using more complex math to build trading formulas, partly because the computing power didn't seem sufficient. Now Axe thought it might be time to give it a shot. Axe had long believed financial markets shared characteristics with Markov chains, those sequences of events in which the next event is only dependent on the current state. In a Markov chain, each step along the way is impossible to predict with certainty, but future steps can be predicted with some degree of accuracy if one relies on a capable model. When Simons and Baum developed their hypothetical trading model at the IDA a decade prior, they too had described the market as a Markov-like process. To improve their predictive models, Axe concluded it was time to bring in someone with experience developing stochastic equations, the broader family of equations to which Markov chains belong. Stochastic equations model dynamic processes that evolve over time, and can involve a high level of uncertainty. Strauss had recently read academic literature suggesting that trading models based on stochastic equations could be valuable tools. He agreed that Axcom needed to recruit additional mathematical firepower. A bit later, Rene Carmona, a professor at nearby University of California, Irvine, got a call from a friend. There's a group of mathematicians doing stochastic differential equations who are looking for help, the friend said. How well do you know that stuff? A 41-year-old native of France, who later became a professor at Princeton University, Carmona didn't know much about markets or investing, but stochastic differential equations were his specialty. These equations can make predictions using data that appears random. Weather forecasting models, for example, use stochastic equations to generate reasonably accurate estimates. Members of Axcom's team viewed investing through a math prism and understood financial markets to be complicated and evolving, with behavior that is difficult to predict, at least over long stretches, just like a stochastic process. It's easy to see why they saw similarities between stochastic processes and investing. For one thing, Simons, Axe, and Strauss didn't believe the market was truly a random walk or entirely unpredictable, as some academics and others argued. Though it clearly had elements of randomness, much like the weather, mathematicians like Simons and Axe would argue that a probability distribution could capture futures prices as well as any other stochastic process. That's why Axe thought employing such a mathematical representation could be helpful to their trading models. Perhaps by hiring Carmona, they could develop a model that would produce a range of likely outcomes for their investments, helping to improve their performance. 
Carmona was eager to lend a hand. He was consulting for a local aerospace company at the time and liked the idea of picking up extra cash working for Axcom a few days a week. The challenge of improving the firm's trading results also intrigued him. The goal was to invent a mathematical model and use it as a framework to infer some consequences and conclusions, Carmona says. The name of the game is not to always be right, but to be right often enough. Carmona wasn't certain the approach would work, or even that it was much better than the less quantitative investment strategies embraced by most others at the time. If I had a better understanding of psychology or traders on the floor of the exchange, maybe we would do that, Carmona says. Early on, Carmona used Strauss's data to try to improve Axcom's existing mathematical models, but his work didn't lead to many useful advances. Although Carmona's models were more sophisticated than those Axcom previously employed, they didn't seem to work much better. Later, Renaissance would fully embrace stochastic differential equations for risk management and options pricing, but for now, they couldn't find a way to profit from these techniques, frustrating Carmona. By 1987, Carmona was plagued by guilt. His pay came from a portion of Axe's personal bonus, yet Carmona was contributing next to nothing to the company. He decided to spend that summer working full-time at Axcom, hoping more time devoted to the models would lead to greater success. Carmona made little headway, further aggravating him. Axe and Strauss didn't seem to mind, but Carmona felt awful. I was taking money from them and nothing was really working, he says. One day, Carmona had an idea. Axcom had been employing various approaches to using their pricing data to trade, including relying on breakout signals. They also used simple linear regressions, a basic forecasting tool relied upon by many investors that analyzes the relationships between two sets of data or variables under the assumption those relationships will remain linear. Plot crude oil prices on the x-axis and the price of gasoline on the y-axis, place a straight regression line through the points on the graph, extend that line, and you usually can do a pretty good job predicting prices at the pump for a given level of oil price. Market prices are sometimes all over the place, though. A model dependent on running simple linear regressions through data points generally does a poor job predicting future prices in complex, volatile markets marked by freak snowstorms, panic selling, and turbulent geopolitical events, all of which can play havoc with commodity and other prices. At the same time, Strauss had collected dozens of data sets with closing prices of commodities from various historical periods. Carmona decided they needed regressions that might capture nonlinear relationships in market data. He suggested a different approach. Carmona's idea was to have computers search for relationships in the data Strauss had amassed. Perhaps they could find instances in the remote past of similar trading environments. Then they could examine how prices reacted. By identifying comparable trading situations and tracking what subsequently happened to prices, they could develop a sophisticated and accurate forecasting model capable of detecting hidden patterns. For this approach to work, Axcom needed a lot of data, even more than Strauss and the others had collected. To solve the problem, Strauss began to model data rather than just collect it. In other words, to deal with gaps in the historical data, 
He used computer models to make educated guesses as to what was missing. They didn't have extensive cotton pricing data from the 1940s, for example, but maybe creating the data would suffice. Just as one can infer what a missing jigsaw puzzle piece might look like by observing pieces already in place, the AXCOM team made deductions about the missing information and inputted it into its database. Carmona suggested letting the model run the show by digesting all the various pieces of data and spitting out buy and sell decisions. In a sense, he was proposing an early machine learning system. The model would generate predictions for various commodity prices based on complex patterns, clusters, and correlations that Carmona and the others didn't understand themselves and couldn't detect with the naked eye. Elsewhere, statisticians were using similar approaches, called kernel methods, to analyze patterns in data sets. Back on Long Island, Henry Laufer was working on similar machine learning tactics in his own research and was set to share it with Simons and others. Carmona wasn't aware of this work. He was simply proposing using sophisticated algorithms to give Axe and Strauss the framework to identify patterns in current prices that seemed similar to those in the past. You should use this, Carmona urged his colleagues. When they shared the approach with Simons, he blanched. The linear equations they had been relying on generated trade ideas and an allocation of capital that Simons could understand. By contrast, it wasn't clear why Carmona's program produced its results. His method wasn't based on a model Simons and his colleagues could reduce to a set of standard equations, and that bothered him. Carmona's results came from running a program for hours, letting computers dig through patterns, and then generate trades. To Simons, it just didn't feel right. I can't get comfortable with what this is telling me, Simons told the team one day. I don't understand why the program is saying to buy and not sell. Later, Simons became more exasperated. It's a black box, he said with frustration. Carmona agreed with Simons' assessment, but he persisted. Just follow the data, Jim, he said. It's not me, it's the data. Axe, who was developing a friendship with Carmona, became a believer in the approach, defending it to Simons. It works, Jim, Axe said to Simons, and it makes rational sense. Humans can't forecast prices. Let computers do it, Axe urged. It was exactly what Simons originally had hoped to do. Yet Simons still wasn't convinced of the radical approach. In his head, Simons was all in on the concept of relying on models. His heart wasn't quite there yet, it appeared. Jim liked to figure out what the model was doing, Strauss recalls. He wasn't super fond of the colonel. Over time, Strauss and his colleagues created and discovered additional historical pricing data, helping Axe develop new predictive models relying on Carmona's suggestions. Some of the weekly stock trading data they'd later find went back as far as the 1800s, reliable information almost no one else had access to. At the time, the team couldn't do much with the data, but the ability to search history to see how markets reacted to unusual events would later help Simons's team build models to profit from market collapses and other unexpected events, helping the firm trounce markets during those periods. When the AXCOM team started testing the approach, they quickly began to see improved results. The firm began incorporating higher-dimensional kernel regression approaches, which seemed to work best for trending models, 
or those predicting how long certain investments would keep moving in a trend. Simons was convinced they could do even better. Carmona's ideas helped, but they weren't enough. Simons called and visited, hoping to improve Axcom's performance, but he mostly served as the pool operator, finding wealthy investors for the fund and keeping them happy, while attending to the various technology investments that made up about half of the $100 million assets now held by the firm. Seeking even more mathematical firepower, Simons arranged for a well-respected academic to consult with the firm. That move would lay the groundwork for a historic breakthrough.